Welcome to Making Waves, a show about sound art, produced by New Adventures in Sound Art. I'm your host, Darren Copeland. On today's show, we are talking to two artists that come to sound art via other artistic disciplines and who are showing work this summer at the Nason North Media Arts Centre here in South River, Ontario. In the second half of the show, I'll be talking to Sandy McLennan, who is a filmmaker and photographer using handmade analog techniques. He has created the interactive installation My Place Here and Now, which mixes pinhole photography and interactive digital sound. To start the show, I have Jonathan Terrell. He's trained as an architect, but is creating a interactive media place-based work that he describes as event-based architecture. Skirmishing to, to delay the Americans' landing. 
event is more powerful than that. You know, Here is Jonathan Terrell talking about event-based architecture in relation to his artwork, Sounding Bodies. Uh, as far as I understand, your background is in architecture. Is that right? And and that um, and then how did you get into uh, make from that making sound installations? What was the the through line for you? Well, I, I guess like um, like many architects, I'm primarily a frustrated musician, um, and so I've been you know I've been playing music for most of my life in various kind of forms through classical rock bands and some more experimental music and whatever and um and studied architecture and then kind of somewhere i guess in my undergrad years realized that there's like a whole discourse and and field of study at sort of at the intersection of of sound and architecture and, and music and architecture and so i started trying to do some work in that way and you know focusing some of the projects i did in school to this relationship between architecture and sound and then and then after graduating, I worked um, with um, some artists that were also interested in, I guess, like the kind of expanded field of architecture that includes various other media. And so I worked with Philip Beasley on, on his projects and started integrating sound elements into those installations and also with Derek Remington. So I guess over the years, I've just tried to find a way to move backwards and forwards between architecture and sound and architecture and music. Do you find with working on these very large art projects that that you know across the boundary between architecture and art is there is there a distinction for those of you that are working in those areas between the two you know i I think that if you ask an i mean i could be out of turn here but i think if you ask an architect there's not really a distinction i think if you had to ask an artist there might be um but I, I think as architects, like there's a kind of, you know, this, this might go back to ancient architectural discourse, but it certainly goes back to modern architecture and the Bauhaus and figures like Walter Gropius and Mies van der Rohe, who consider architecture to be a kind of like completely integrated creative field that everything from the building structure down to the details and the typeface and everything is is um, part of the building. And I guess architects that are interested in all also in parallel artistic fields would probably include sound light and and other kind of uh, ephemeral media in the purview of the architect but um yeah so so i don't really see a, a distinction i guess at least in in terms of the types of work that i've been working on which are kind of environmental or more spatial uh works um they wouldn't be classical fine arts so i guess that's where i see the continuity Right, and then are there artworks that you see out there that you can go, oh, that's actually architecture? Right, yeah. I mean, I think that there's a there's a kind of, um, there's like a branch, uh, certainly of like some of the American land artists or, or um, other large kind of sculptural artists uh, like uh, Richard Serra, for instance, um, with the huge tilted arcs and um, torqued ellipses and things, which, you know, they, and it, I think sort of Richard, Richard Serra would be would be not very not take kindly to being uh to his work being called architectural. I think he's adamantly against that characterization, but it, nonetheless it's you know it's spatial it, it acts upon your body. It um it's uh it's something that is is immersive and um and so it's it's hard not to think of it as architectural and and architects draw a lot from figures like that. I think um James Terrell would be another 
um, one of these kinds of uh, artists that's working very spatially, obviously with light, but then um, some of the larger projects like the Roden Crater, for instance, is, you know, it's actually more on the, on the realm of landscape. But yeah, so I guess those are just to name a couple of, um, a couple of artists that are working also, I'd say, at the intersection, intersection of art and architecture. Is, is one of the distinctions that it's daily, that, that an architectural work also serves the purpose of some kind of daily function uh, or habitation, and whereas the artwork assumes that that won't happen? I, I guess so. I mean, I guess that's a kind of, I think it's like maybe an Oscar Wilde quote that says like all, all art is quite useless. Um, I guess that would be like a, a way of distinguishing the two, but, but, but I think that, you know, our, our, there are elements to, there are many, many elements to the building that are not functional. And of course it's got to do basic things, but then once we move beyond that, we're deeply into the realm of like experience and beauty and joy perhaps. And, uh, and, and so, so I think that at that, at that point things merge, but yeah, I guess like a basic characterization would be about function, but I would have to think about that more because <laughs> I think there's certainly a functionality to art as well. I mean, there are political functions, aesthetic functions to art, um, symbolic functions and whatever. So so I'm not sure if the characterization totally holds water all the time, but it is, it is a kind of useful way of distinguishing things, I guess. Right. Um, and then with your piece that uh, is coming up, uh, Sounding Bodies, um, which was one you made uh, a few years ago, um, when you when that was mounted in Toronto during the Nuit Blanche, um, and people were inhabiting it, uh, was that was that experience of architecture or is that experience of an artwork? <laughs> yeah, uh, like I I think of it as an architecture, um, but but there are elements of it. You know, I, th- I think what's exciting for architects and what's important for architects to do is to work with time-based media and to work with events um and there are architects that are certainly in, in interested in performance and and more kind of event-based architectures um and um and so uh, but but i think it's important for architects because i think that's where experience happens and that's what connects a building back to to a person you know and and so so i i think of it as an architectural event i don't really think at least of the piece as, a, as an artistic I mean, I think of it as an architectural event, uh, but it is artistic, of course. And the reason I think about it as architectural, I guess, is because, you know, it it, it deals deeply with space, um, like the orientation of the site mattered, uh, the context was taken into consideration, the views, um, how people move around the space. Um, and then furthermore, I guess, like what what kind of more, I guess, less less tangible spaces were created through the sound the acoustic arenas themselves and how that influenced people moving around and experiencing the work. Right. So you're not just playing back sound, but it's sound in a, you're creating a context for listening to sound. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, um, that's also something that's like been very interesting to me is just the specificity of spatialized sound. So like in the Nuit Blanche project, we were close to Fort York um, and so there were some kind of narratives about the history of the fort and the history of the site, but um, 
but you're also standing amidst like this huge canyon of new condo developments and which dwarf the dwarf the fort and um and so the the kind of disjunction between the old and the new in that specific location revealed through sound i think i think that's something specifically that sound can do and um and at the same time the project was sort of a reference to the Glenn Gould idea of North Project, and so it's it's also a bit of a meditation on the you know the kind of distant, the the distant uh, spaces of the of the Canadian North, um, and trying to somehow bring some of that idea or atmosphere or discourse into the very local place that we were in. And so, how was that done? How was that? How are you connecting those those? Uh, diff- very different elements. I mean, in some ways, we think of Toronto as the South, <laughs> yeah, from a yeah. perspective, um, and and how. But but in a sense, was it a frontier uh, back at the time of the, the founding of the fort? So a northern frontier for Europeans. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I was kind of like in in terms of like the relationship with the Gould project, like the uh, you know he. Like it, it's specifically called the idea of North, right? I mean, it's like his his view of that Northern experience was a very distanced one, even though, like, he, I think he had visited as far as Churchill, Manitoba, but um, but it, but it's still a kind of an idea about Northernness, and and I guess you know, in some ways, can it, many Canadians draw some sense of the North. I mean, that the Raptors had just won the championship, and 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 like this team which really has nothing to do with northern canada is still drawing some sort of identity from this place in the north which nobody really people haven't really been to and and also i mean i was kind of interested in like the sort of the the colonial stance that that also brings like in gould's in gould's documentary about the kind of emptiness of the north which is not really an emptiness because it's been peopled and and been cultured for for thousands and thousands of years um, so, I, I mean, these were all kind of layers that were in the piece. I'm not sure that people would have walked away, you know, picking up any of these uh, this stuff. But this is like we, we kind of used some of the Gould uh, sound clips and and made, you know, made some drone sounds that were that were based on kind of sampling like small bits of audio and then creating textures out of that. So it, was, it sort of became a bit of a, a, a foundation for the work. And so with the version that's coming up, in South River, which is uh, three and a half hours north of Toronto, in yeah. a very in a rural context, um, how has the piece changed to uh, address that context? In the context of South River, I guess um, what what remains uh, is is a kind of sense of like conjuring up a sense of place. And so, in the Toronto example, it was kind of a sense of, of the, the near and the distance, distant, so the local in the city, and then some idea of north. In South River, it's um, it's a little bit different. I mean, I, I, I'm so intrigued by this place that I've never been to, South River, and, and, I'm, and I just find, I found it quite curious because I'm going through, you know, all of these hours of interview audio that you had done with local residents and newcomers, and hearing their stories, and and so I'm I'm kind of sitting in Toronto, having never been to this place, conjuring up an image of it based on audio, based on not only audio, but stories, and not only stories, but stories that come out of the voice. 
And, um, and so I, I have an image of it, but it's not a real image of it. It's an image that's been given to me. And so I'm conjuring up this image of this place uh, that is strange to me because I've never been there and yet also very, very familiar. And the familiarity comes from... I grew up in a small town of 6,000 people, and um, when I'm listening to the the discussion about changes in the town and uh, and the highway in particular, you know, people mentioned the highway and how that changed everything. You know, we had the same thing. I grew up in Perth, Ontario, and uh, the highway had been there. Highway 7 had been there for a long time, but the kind of uh, pull away from the downtown that the highway represents, um, you know, is this kind of poignant, story that happens to all of these towns in their change. And um, and so I, I found it kind of like at once strange because I'd never been to South River and yet strangely familiar because these stories sounded very similar. Even the tones of some of the voices sounded like voices that I would have heard uh, growing up. So so that's kind of, to me, it's I, I like this, uh, you know, uncanniness of it being familiar yet strange at the same time. And so... That's why I'm just sort of working with this idea of placelessness and place at the same time, and that that's why I'm calling it Utopia um, as a as a as a working title for the project. The Utopia meaning that it's a it's an imagined uh, reality. Yeah. So the 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 U prefix in Utopia can mean no place, but I think it can also be written EU, which is you know the same prefix as let's say euphoria or something and and which which means good so th- there's an ambiguity in um the original usage of the term utopia and you know often we can think of utopia as being i mean it's got a bad rap right because of you know <laughs> modernist visions of how we should all just change how we live instantly and, and try something new or what what have you but um but there is a sense of uh, of goodness, and uh, and and I and I'm sort of also I was inspired by one of the one of the interviewees. I think her name I think it was Jill Boshelty, and she just there was just at one point in the interview where she said, "It's a good place. It's still a good place," and I just loved that line, <laughs> and uh, and so I'm kind of interested in goodness. But at the same time, for me, it's a kind of utopia because I've never been there. It's a kind of a non-place and a good place at the same time. Um, so with the piece, then you're you're creating a soundtrack that plays out of the architecture that involves these stories. What is it that you hope the listener they won't hear all of the stories? So what is the momentary event for them? Um, I mean, I think well, there's a couple things that I hope to happen. I guess like in the um, the Nuit Blanche project, it was. Um, it was kind of more inwardly focused. So the, the the speakers or the bodies that are producing sound are arranged around the audience. So it's it's, it's kind of immersive and and even though there was no there's no kind of one position where you could listen to the whole thing and get it all because it's fragmentary. It's still you were sort of in the center of this thing, and and maybe that's maybe that's a um, a position that people are can kind of relate to in terms of performance but in this case it's outwardly focused so the bodies are turned out there's a cluster of actually eight of them it was originally going to be six but I'm going to do eight um, and they're outwardly focused and what I'm planning to do is sort of move these stories around in layers and kind of orbit this um, this figure of eight outwardly focused speakers and so and they're going to orbit at different rates. And so I think the idea is that one has to, or what one can choose to 
be stationary and allow these kind of stories to come and pass and layer upon themselves, or one can kind of move around and follow uh, one of the stories as it as it goes. Um, it'll all be fragmentary, I, I, you know. But I but my sense is is just about like trying to conjure up a sense of a sense of place through story. Um, and, and I'm also, I, I haven't been to the site, so I don't know exactly, but I, I like this idea too, that as one walks around, there may be other views that one takes in, other directions that one's looking that um, may, be heard, may be seen at the same time that you're listening to um, a fragment. And, and there might be a kind of um, uh, interaction between what's seen uh, as you're moving around and what's heard. Earlier you mentioned about event-based architecture and how that more architects should should um, work with that. Is there something about creating something for a specific context and event or that is experienced in a limited time uh, that develops a deeper contact between people in place? Or uh, what is the value for you in that? Um. I think that there definitely is um, even basically musical performances that you've been to, uh, at least for myself, the most poignant ones that stick with me are in kind of uh, inextricably linked to the place in which I saw them usually. And, um, and so I think that, I think that when those things kind of merge um, a sound event and a spatial event, uh, I think that they imprint themselves in memory in a, in in a kind of deep way. And, um, and, and so I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in, you know, how that creates a sense of place. Like there, there may be, this may be a slight you know, tangent, but I, I was involved in a project called Track Toronto, which, which kind of uh, mapped songs that references, referenced places in the city of Toronto. And, and we put up signs at different locations where the lyrics referenced them. And then you could... Um, you know, go to the song with a QR code and listen to it in the place. And to, to my mind, like this, the sense of like a sense of place is a combination of bricks and mortar. It's a combination of weather. It's a combination of personal interactions, but also, also this cultural material and songs. I think make up a sense of place just as much as bricks and mortar do. And so, um, and so, I'm I'm kind of just interested in how those dimensions can deepen senses of a sense of place you know one of the things that i'm like i'm kind of interested in in the piece is um like some kind of idea also about sonic materiality like the you know i i would say maybe in a broad sense like when one thinks about constructing audio systems or audio playback systems i'd say like transparency is usually um, an ambition you know how do we get the system the playback system including the the source the amplifier and the loudspeakers and whatever to play as little role in the shaping of sound as possible i guess that would be sort of like often a, a paradigm and what i find exciting about these exciting about these exciters which they're called the the, the transducers that vibrate the, the sheet metal to produce sound is that um it's intentionally colored in a way and, and not only colored but even the you know the 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 properties of the material um that is its kind of flexibility um they produce things like natural reverb times um and and they color the sound in a way that i think is quite interesting and and um 
and and so I, I I'm sort of interested in how that like is is a is a discourse in in architecture and sound or like a, a kind of interrelationship between the two at the material level, uh, and then and also I'm I'm kind of interested in like how that offers possibilities for like new sculptural possibilities. So like for these for this piece, you know, it's a simple thing of bringing the two corners of the top of the sheet together, and then that creates it kind of finds its own form of this sort of anthropomorphic shape um and so it, it it's now like dislocated from the original kind of symbolism of a loudspeaker which we know so well and sort of sort of interested then in like the more sculptural qualities qualities that are possible in using technologies like this to produce sound yeah i mean it's um sound is always colored by uh space and by the materials that are you know that are housing uh listening environment uh if it's indoors um but with the tactile speakers or these kind of uh, exciters um what's uh, interesting is that is the material um becomes the loudspeaker the space becomes the loudspeaker <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah um, exactly and uh that that is a uh interesting area that um i was wondering how you encountered that and uh, for the first time and and uh, what drew you to that that notion yeah, I mean, I guess, um, you know, I encountered it just through, like, experimenting with these these things, you know. Um, and I, and from what I, you know, the searching I did online and trying to figure out how to use them and stuff, most of it, I mean, I think that they're used for, like, invisible in-wall speakers sometimes, although I, I would have to hear how good they sound. <laughs> but uh, in any case, uh, a lot of the... Um, kind of videos and stuff online are about how to make cheap speakers. And they really, you know, they do, they're fairly high performing cheap speakers. But yeah, I was kind of more interested in this idea of, I guess, like subsuming the loudspeaker into the architecture and making the architect, you know, the, the, the proverbial, <laughs> if walls could speak, you know, kind of thing um, becomes quite interesting um, for me as an architect. And, and, and I think it, it just offers more integration with space and architecture and material when we're not relying on um, a standalone figural loudspeaker that looks like a loudspeaker. That was Jonathan Torrell in conversation on Making Waves. His work, Sounding Bodies, can be experienced at the NASA North Media Arts Center from June 17th to September 6th. Next, I have Sandy McLennan, His work, My Place Here and Now, is also on exhibit at NASA, and it mixes pinhole photography with touch-based interactive sound. In my conversation, he breaks down these different elements and conveys his excitement working with these different media. What is uh, pinhole photography? Pinhole photography is where there's no electricity involved. It's purely a photochemical process and it involves um, exposing a a single paper which has been coated with an emulsion, a light sensitive emulsion. In my case I use paper, some other people use celluloid film. Uh, So no electricity, one exposure at a time. The photographic paper is much less sensitive than celluloid film film that you'd normally put in a, a 35 millimeter camera or a 120 camera and the size of the hole that you're allowing light to come through to strike it 
this is very small. So the combination of the small opening for light and the relative insensitivity of the, the recording medium, the photo paper, means that you have to use a very long exposure time. So there's a limitation in these in the tool. Uh, first of all, uh, you have to expose for a long time, say one minute, even on a bright day. And you only take one exposure at a time. And you don't know what that looks like. There's no screen. So in order to see what you've got from your exposure, it's a true experience of latent imaging because there, there is a lag between making the exposure imagining what that might look like going to the dark room even if it's a portable dark room right beside you in a tent and you've got to take the paper out from your device uh, which may be a cardboard box it might be a cookie tin anything that is light proof except for that tiny hole that uh, you, you put tape on it to start with so that when you take the box out into the daylight that no light is getting in the box you set it down on a, on a steady surface and you take the tape off and, and that's when light starts to strike the, the, the emulsion, the, the photographic paper inside. And so a steady surface because over one minute the box would move and the subjects who are in front of the pinhole who are, who are being recorded inevitably, not inevitably, but usually move even if it's a breezy tree or a person, it's, you can't still hold still for one minute. And so this is another part of why you don't know exactly what you're going to get. So you take that one first exposure into the dark room and you take the paper out of the dark box and put it into the developer and then a stop bath, which is usually water, and then a fixer. And then you can look at it in the light, the light of day or a room light, a flashlight. And then you see what you got. So it's a very honest experience of latent imaging, meaning an image has been recorded, but you can't see it. And the only experience of it is in your imagination and in your hopes and wishes, <laughs> because it takes time. So it's a, it's a very slow process. It can be frustrating, because if you go and you take a look at the result of your exposure and you didn't get anything, that last 10 minutes or whatever it was, it has not gotten you any material that you might use in a, to show anybody or even for your own feedback. Uh, it, it does provide your own feedback because you have to then troubleshoot why. Why didn't the image turn out? Is this the earliest form of photography? It's, it's similar to the earliest form of photography because that process would also have involved only one exposure at a time. Um, I think the addition in the earliest days would be that the photographer had to not only uh, make one exposure at a time and process it to see what they got, but they would have had to mix a recipe of emulsion and coat it on on the surface. Like, uh, so I don't know much about it, but, but glass was a material that they used. Um, were there metals also? Brass plates? In any case, those materials don't uh, register a change when struck by light. So the emulsion is the key. The emulsion is a, a salt. Um, it's, a, it's an unstable molecule that when struck by light loses a, an electron. 
and then it's not until that molecule gets in the developer which makes another chemical change and it makes that molecule turn black or darker and that's when you can see the image so yes the earliest days of photography would have had these same processes and so it's it's almost like um, it's not really going back in time I mean when we work with the, with the students the great thing is that they are experiencing something for the first time they're not looking back at all they are being introduced to a brand new creative possibility a brand new medium for them uh, they have no nostalgia or um, you know appreciation of some old tool they are acting for themselves to, uh, just like the photographer in the earliest days or you or me if we went out and, and, and shot some pinhole today or tomorrow it's, it's all brand new each time you make an exposure that, and, and so the kids have the same joy and excitement that, that any photographer along the history of it w would have and, and that's very gratifying for, for us when we put on these workshops, giving these kids a chance to try something they never would have experienced before. In the piece that you're presenting at NASA, uh, you are also matching this very hands-on um, technique with a, with a digital sound recording that is triggered by the user of the installation touching uh, a surface. Um, maybe yeah. explain how that works. Yeah, it suits me perfectly. Uh, I like to use the phrase that the right tool at the right time. I'm not a, I'm not an analogist or a digitalist or anything. I, um, if, if in, in my motion picture films, I tend to have these hand buck, bucket processed film, and then sound is recorded digitally and and edited digitally. Uh, so the students did the same thing. Um, ASA provided uh, handheld recorders for them, and, and they were trying that, many of them perhaps for the first time. And so they're experiencing the world, in this case in their schoolyard, which it turns out once you start looking and listening, that, that world that appears small at first is a, is a much bigger world than you think. There's lots to see, there's lots to hear. And so putting these pinhole photographs uh, and, and darkroom photochemical images, pairing them up with the sounds that the students recorded and having the viewer come along and, and wave their hand because currently they're on the other side of a window, but, th but that doesn't matter. You, the hand gets close enough to, to generate uh, electricity moving through a sensor on the back of the photograph which goes to a, a touch board uh, made by the Bear Conductive Company. And the little microcomputer that that is says, I sense a, a change. So in the digital world, a zero to a one. And then if I sense that change, trigger a sound that sits on the little micro SD card and play it out through the amplifier and the speakers. And so not, not only are the viewers seeing the cool work that the, that the kids did because they did it all themselves right from scratch but they recorded these these sounds and then when, when they go together 
it's a third experience. So there's there's so many experiences in this. They, they made the camera. They uh, took the, the exposures. They uh, developed the photographs. They recorded the sounds. And now the viewer, which I think is apt, because when, when you make a piece of, of art, you've done your work. And then the viewer has a role. And so in this case, the viewer has the role, which image are they going to touch? Which sound do they like? They can play it again. If they wave their hand over that picture again, they can hear it again and again and again. And then they can hear this other sound because they put their hand near this other picture. And so that is a whole other experience. And then the fourth or fifth, whatever number we're at, is the fact that in South River at NASA, there are other sounds going on. You're, you're standing there in the world, experiencing this art, making some choices about how you want to experience it by, by, by sort of touching and, and, and hearing. And then a sound goes by behind you. It might be somebody talking. It might be a, a vehicle. Um, and so you're, you're in the world of, of the corner of, um, Ottawa, was it Ottawa street and, uh, used to be highway 11. What's that? 124. And, and, and your, your mind also wanders off into this world of these, these curious images taken in the in the schoolyard and Medal of the monkey bars. Medal of the monkey bars. Medal of the monkey bars. It's a, it seems to me that the aspect of touching the photograph to generate the sound that brings in an element of uh, physicality to it that seemed to be removed from the digital sound recording techniques um, other than the activity of making the sound or producing the sound that was recorded but after that everything happens in the you know realm of computers and software and things and then and then it gets actualized through physical, physical, physical contact. So is that, to, is that for you a connection back to the photographic process and the hands-on nature of that? What, when, when you say that, what's, what comes to mind is the excitement for a viewer of being able to interact. Normally, looking in a gallery or at an installation is just that. There, I mean, there could be sound. Uh, so there could be the eyes and the ears, but but this involves them physically moving toward the thing. So changing their way of experiencing the image, and then when they hear it make a sound, I believe that will be a novel experience for people, and it is for 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 me. I have not put still photographs together with sounds before, so that is n novel and and exciting. And then putting it in the in the hands, literally, of the viewer, is is exciting too because you 
we don't know what ones that they, they might stand there and 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 make it play that one sound over and over again and they could even close their eyes they just like the sound uh, or they may choose to to lay off and and not press or or, or come close to, to any of the the photographs because they just like looking at them so it's their choice they get a, they get a good choice and I like that I like handing it over to the viewer and it, it's a bonus if if some viewer says uh, even even one says you know I, I got something out of it. I got a kick out of that I, you know, I got a I got a boost out of that that one made me sad um, that that reminded me of something or that one took took me away and for a minute in my head you know uh, when we have the interior installation at NASA those ones will actually have photographs that must be touched by the by the viewer some of them I'm not sure how we're going to do it yet we're working on a, on a third board that is going to have color photographs which I'm working with for the first time I've not worked with color pinhole photographs and in my search on the internet I can't find anybody else who's doing it either so I feel good about that it's tricky stuff and uh it, it, I'm experiencing the frustration that some students might feel uh, of trying again and again and again and not getting an image and really being determined. So it does take a lot, a lot of time and it's a blessing to have the time to do that, to, to, you know, to be invited to, 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 to create something as part of my work and, and, and my time. I, I appreciate that. And, and so this board, the third board inside, is going to, maybe it's going to be some that you have to physically touch and some that if you just approach with your hand and you get a couple of inches away, it'll be triggered. And we can do different things with the sound too, because the, the, the touch board allows different programming. You could have the, the trigger play the sound once. And that, long, that sound is as long as the editor wants it to be. So in, in the case of the ones we have out, uh, in the windows at NASA right now, I think the longest one may be five or six seconds. And some of them are, are just a second or two. We could have them play uh, po is it po po polyphony when, polyphony when more than one sound yeah. plays at once. So you can program the touch board to, while one sound is playing, go ahead and start the other sound if somebody touches a second. So it'll be, once I get my photographs all done and they're, they're coming along and I'm getting some good results now after the, another session shooting pinhole in South River, um, and I'm printing now in the darkroom, so I'm, I'm contact printing. That's that's the third phase of what the kids were doing. They they take their original images, which they they made, and those are not going to change. But they're going to make a print of it, a copy of it, by shining light through the back of their original onto a fresh piece of emulsion paper, and exposing that to light in the darkroom, and then they develop that. So they get an image where the values of light are reversed. So black is now white, white is black. And with the color, that's where it becomes tricky because trying to get realistic color is is something that I, I thought I was trying for. But in, in the end, as happened with a lot of my processes, it, okay, I thought I was after that, but now I like the look of this or I like this procedure. And so now I'm on a, a slightly different track. <laughs> so it's I think it's kind of fitting that the last photo I took in South River was with the pinhole cardboard box camera looking down the railway track, right down low, because <laughs> there's, there's, you know, there's different ways to go, and I, I've got images of, of, of the fact that, that South River is is, is 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 north and south. You know, it's got 
Toronto that way, North Bay that way, and you're right along this this major highway in Toronto. And so uh, I, I like that that theme of you know where you're going to go next, either in in your artistic process or your darkroom or your sound recording. So we'll see what the, what this board uh, brings. The the sound production for it is is new for me because of that viewer controlling how it's going to to run and so you have to decide what possibilities you're going to give them and uh so that that's been exciting too i i've recorded some in south river and i and i recorded some um more abstract stuff at home some metal some metal sounds so what being from port sydney and the huntsville area before that uh what have you learned about south river in this project well, I have different experiences of South River. Every t I've lived in Huntsville for about 35 years. And every time I go north of Arrowhead Park, leaving Huntsville to go north, it's an adventure. It still feels like an adventure. So to go uh, up Highway 11, it, it, it's been... So South River used to be on Highway 11. And, and so when we would go to North Bay, you had to stop at the stoplights. You're on Highway 11, but you, the stoplights were part of the route. And so I have that experience. And now there are bypasses and, and big uh, sweeping uh, overpasses. And they they are kind of fascinating for me image-wise and um, think, thinking-wise. They, they, they represent this possibility of, are you going to get off here and onto this large infrastructure thing i mean the highway used to be so simple just a two-lane highway with stoplights and just like any other road and now it's this divided highway with i don't know two lanes on each side and these big overpasses which you know millions and millions of dollars and all that so that that's interesting and there's another part of the, the highway you can see the old highway just north of nasa and it, it's a grass strip and it runs right into a bunch of stones, <laughs> which are part of the new highway. And so South River to me represents these changes that, that I've felt living in Huntsville, the you know modernization, more people coming faster, the whole get from here to there is faster. And so uh, it's, it's a good opportunity to, to slow down a bit because the pinhole process is very slow and, and to go and, and look at some of these symbols that represent uh, the South River being sort of en, en route, en route somewhere. You know, people people do stay there and live there. Uh, however, it is it is kind of it's on, it's kind of on the way, on the way somewhere. I mean, people might go past South River like on their way out west. You know, it's a, it's it's a, it's a part of the transportation of, of Ontario and, and Canada even. So that that's always of interest to me, and. Uh, the high school, I mean, that's that thing. I mean, I used to go up there and, and now it's just a ghost, a ghost building with the broken windows. And uh, it's it's a, it's abandoned, but not demolished. And so it sits there. And I worked in schools for 30 years. And so I think of people places like a school when they're empty as very evocative, ghosty places. So that's that's something that you see when you when you come to South River, and then there's the new high school, which I've not even been in. So, those kind of South River has those visible representations of the changes of, of, of uh, 
not society so much, but, but just the, the increased pace. The, I used to think of it as a little village, which, which, which it still is, but uh, now the fact that you can whiz by it on the highway on the way to North Bay and, and you don't even see it, that, that's interesting too. Cutting into the rocks, you know, get, coming coming off the highway and going through the, the rock cuts, and uh, it's all very representative of the of the ever changing time. And and um, you know, even if you talk about nostalgic for something, well, it's no use. <laughs> Things change, and, and South River is definitely a, a place to see it. When you're taking photographs with the pinhole. Are you looking for things that have some kind of resonance for you uh, socially or in terms of your memories of places? Yes, and and so during the the pandemic, the school has been the school, South River Public School, where we went with the students, and we were welcomed in there, and 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 we were, you know we were we were going great. The kids made their cameras. They had their first session shooting with them, and then it was closed for a year and and more and so that strikes me in 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 my head um, again school being a, a people place when it's not open to people so i took my portable darkroom and i set it up on the front lawn and then yeah it's, there's a there's a bit there's a sadness there's a i mean i'm getting older so there's there's some kind of thing about that i'm not sure exactly what that is but I, I gravitated to some of the signs like at the school there's a sign that says exit only do not enter and, and that caught my eye because the kids were forced out of the school uh, it was just that exit only do not enter uh, and what were some of the other signs school crossing you know, because people pass through school, uh, students come and then they go. So it, it's a pass-through place. Um, there's a, what were some of the other signs. There was a sign on the school uh, where they put up the different letters, and I think it said something about you know registration for for the coming year, and so that was looking ahead. So, yeah, I get, I feel that when I'm shooting the pinhole stuff and, and I went on the overpass and I shot looking north and, and, and looking south so it's a mix of uh, emotion in terms of when you're when you're coming to take pictures you are in a certain headspace you know depending on what's going on in your life what's going on in the world so I feel I do bring that to where I decide to put the camera um, and I don't want it to be sad making, you know, I don't want people to look at the pictures and and be sad. I mean, I, I know I can't help it sometimes because you can't control what the viewer is going to think, but I'm a little bit aware of that. I, 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 I've been, you know, pretty critical of some of the decisions by the government in this, in the pandemic in Ontario. So I, I don't see this as a, as a forum or a, a pedestal to, you know, say something about my, my feelings about that. However, inevitably, I think where I decide to place the camera and, and how, what the look is when I'm doing the printing of those negatives 
the, the look is, I think it's going to have a bit of a rough, I don't know if it's a rough edge. It's, it's I, I just can't help it. It's, it's just, it's been a hell of a year, you know, or whatever, however long it is. So I think it's, that's got to come through. How about your approach to sound recording when you choose to record something, particularly with these photographs in mind? What is your thinking? I think it was like when I record for motion pictures. I like to record the sound that is involved with the scene of where I shoot. So the most straightforward way of doing that would be to take your digital recorder to where you're using the portable darkroom. And at the South River Public School, I did hear Blue Jays and Ravens. And um, there was a gurgling pipe. It was raining one day and, and there's a there's a evidently a pipe on the roof that, that drains the flat roof down through a pipe and it comes out near the ground. That was making an interesting sound. So it's like shooting pictures. There's a magnet. And, and I open myself to it, and you you kind of going like a, like a magnet does, you know, when you, when when you turn it, it it goes back to north, you know, there's a draw. So you you're moving your sound recorder, and and you just hear something. So that rainy day was great. I got that gurgling of the water coming out, and then I could take a picture of that pipe. Um, I got I had an umbrella, so when I was waiting for my because it was a duller day, I'm, I'm up into two-minute exposures, four-minute exposures with the camera, and I'm trying to protect the camera because it's a cardboard box from the rain. So I heard the sound of the rain coming on the umbrella. So now I'm recording that. So this is what I mean by being out in a shooting scenario, and then you hear stuff. So it tends to go in that order for me. So it's an improvisation, both visually and, and for sound responding to the elements in the moment I did one session I think I've done three or four sessions of shooting pinhole in South River and the first one I was kind of pure transportation I I went to the airport the little airport uh, the railway tracks the the overpass of the highway and I didn't get great results I, I wasn't understanding how to expose for that particular color paper uh, so when I went back I was drawn back to the school because I think there had been another lockdown, so to speak. The school was closed again, and uh, so it was it was a, it was a, a draw in from my head, but also because the project seemed to say, "Go back to the school," and, and so I did. And it happened to be raining the one time, and that provided a certain mood, which I. If you, I think, if you're feeling it, you're going to record it, in some degree. Um, if, if I'm not feeling it, I, I got to move on, you know, go somewhere else. I guess location is everything. I, it is to me. It, uh, you know, I write that in, in my blurbs. I, sort of in, in, not interpreting the world, but, but uh, feeling the world through h hands, eyes, and ears, and using these tools. The location gives you the source material, and, and then the, the, the processing, the feeding it through. I like to think of the darkroom as a location as well because things can happen in there that reflect how, how you're sensing the world by way of 
choosing when you're going to move the film from one chemical to another or whether you're going to sometimes I've taken the the film at a certain point in the process and I go back to the lake and I throw it in the, throw it in the lake and and you know I've messed it around in the sand so the film gets scratched and so it it picks up parts of the location either through your eye onto the film through your ear onto the recorder or you take it back there I've done some sounds where I've taken a, a depth map of the lake, so it's, it's got contours showing the depth of the lake. And I scan that with a digital scanner, put it through some software, which reads when it, like, I don't know exactly how it works, but it's like a scanner, I guess. It's coming across, and, it, and see, there's a line, so it makes a sound, whoop, and then there's no line, so it makes a different sound, whoop. And so all these elements come from the location, one way or another. You've been listening to Sandy McLennan in conversation with myself, Darren Copeland, here on Making Waves. Thanks for listening.